0: Hello and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret.
1: And this is Amy. And today we are talking to our good friend, Mary Laura Philpott. She's the author of the national bestseller, I Miss You When I Blink, and the brand new memoir in essays. Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, which is out now. You can also find Mary Laura's writing in publications including The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Real Simple. She lives in Nashville with her family. Welcome, Mary Laura. Hey, thanks for having me. This book covers like the real stuff. It tackles the big questions of life, death, and existential fear with humor and wit and your sunny personality.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I went deep in this one. I told my editor when I turned it in, I said, I feel like, you know, I talk with my hands. So I'm always like gesturing high and low. I was like, I feel like I dug really deep and I put my hands like way low. And then I just threw my arms up to the sky. And then I reached way up into the stars. Like This book gets into like the full range of emotions.
0: Yeah, because we know Mary Laura in real life, as we say, and you have an extremely sunny, funny, witty personality. (laughs) But this book gets kind of underneath that. And I think it's perfect for us, for our listeners. Tell us a little bit about the book and how you came to it.
2: Yeah, I keep saying that this book crashed into my life and demanded to be written. It wasn't like, you know, 10 years ago, I was going, in a decade, I want to write this book about this. This was... You know that meme of the... I don't know what show it's from, but it's this woman and she's kind of looking off into space and you see all these equations floating in front of her eyes. That's what this book was doing. Like, as I fell asleep at night, it was like writing itself on the ceiling. So it is about something that had been on my mind a long time, which was the fact that my children were approaching the end of the part of childhood where they live in your house and reaching the part where they move out and they go start their lives on their own. I could sort of feel that clock ticking. Like my youngest was moving into high school. My oldest was getting closer to the end of high school. And I just felt this pressure and excitement, but also sadness. And it just felt like this monumental time coming. And then something happened that kind of kicked that ticking clock into a different gear, which was midway through my son's sophomore year, we woke up one morning to a sound. We thought someone was ramming down our front door. It was this banging sound. And we got up to investigate and we found him unconscious on the bathroom floor having a seizure. And he's, you know, he was almost 16 at the time, so full-grown man size, having a seizure on a tile floor. That's a terrible, terrible sound. And that I depict that morning in the book and calling 911 and that just a whole horror of not understanding what we were seeing and what was going on. And what came after was that he was diagnosed with epilepsy. And so suddenly what was already kind of a heavy thing for me, wrestling with the idea of letting go of my children and letting them go into the world, became how do I let go of this one in particular, knowing... That when he doesn't live here, he's not under my wing and I can't protect him and I can't keep him safe. How do I make sure I've got him completely wrapped mm-hmm. in bubble wrap, super safe before he leaves home? How do I make sure he's on the right medicine? His health is stable. That, you know, when is this going to happen again? What if it happens when he's near the water? What if it happens when he's in college and his roommate doesn't know what to do? So my worry gear shifted into just a whole different level. And what that did to my brain was it made Everything I thought about and everything I saw filter through that worry. So a lot of the things I write about in in this memoir are not directly tied to that story of here I am as a mom letting my kids go. They might seem on the surface to be unrelated, but they're all seen through that filter. There's a chapter in here where I remember being in second grade and there was a girl in my neighborhood who was kidnapped, a teenager in my neighborhood was kidnapped. And this was during the prime like stranger danger time of the 80s. That's a story that kind of popped into my head, a memory that popped into my head and demanded to be in this book. That kind of demanded for me to look at it and go, all right, here's a memory about a time when someone wasn't safe and you didn't know what was coming next. And you were a kid and you were trying to figure out how threatening is this world we live in. That's what ties it all together.
1: I've been thinking about my childhood, I grew up in the same stranger danger time, stranger danger, and also the Russians were going to maybe bomb us and we had to be ready for a nuclear bomb to hit, like the day after being on TV, like we did grow up kids our age with this sort of possibility of existential doom looming over
2: us in a way that I think kind of went away and then came back in the last two to five years. Yeah. And we all watched those. I write about this in the book. Remember, we all watched those after school specials, yes. which were just one horrific catastrophe after the other. It was like, here's one about teenagers getting in a car wreck. Here's one about rape. Here's one about drugs. Here's one about Tom Hanks disappearing into the world of Dungeons and Dragons and
1: never coming back. Like he, he lived right. forever in fantasy land. Yeah. Totally.
2: Yeah. We grew up in this time of dread and trying to make sense of like, which threats will come for me. And what I write about in bomb shelters is that that we never really make sense of that. I mean, I'm now 47. I still don't know which threats are coming for me. This threat that came to my child that came out completely out of the blue. We didn't see that coming out of the blue. Yeah. So I had to kind of wrestle with how do I get out of this gear, this terror gear, and live my life with Hope and joy. And yes, even humor. Like, how do I get back to kind of living in a way where I'm not constantly white knuckling, not being able to sleep at night? And so that's kind of what I'm working toward in this book, which I think is what makes it, you know, some dark stuff happens in this book. And I have some sort of dark emotional wrestling matches in this book, but it lands in a happy place and it lands in sort of a feel good place because that's what I'm working toward is how do I find my way back to Feeling like, okay, there's a reason we all get up every morning and keep going, and the things we do matter. And yes, the world is scary, but also it is wonderful.
0: We have talked so much about I had such a strong experience of motherhood that I had postpartum anxiety with my first child. It was like I opened a door and it was like here's the millions of ways the world can hurt a baby. Like mm-hmm. and I would just look at my baby's like skin. It's going to be scarred someday. Like think they're going to burn themselves on the oven. Like oh yes. I just saw the whole world as just fear rush like i open the door on a submarine like rushing rushing in and yes. i really related to the book in that way in terms of like whether it's your child being diagnosed with something that you're not expecting or whether it's just being alive in the world and i think amy the new after school special is crime podcasts. Like, that's why people are just constantly consuming. Like, our age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> terrifying content. Like, this guy chopped up 10 people and put them in <laughs> weird places. Like, we're all trying to process, I think, all the time, this hum of anxiety that is mm-hmm. really weighing us down when we're trying to do something kind of
2: joyful, which is raise our kids. Right. And there's no... You know, what I keep learning again and again and again in life is that there's not a finish line, Mm. whether that's parenting. You know, it's not like if I can just raise them to this age, then they'll be fine and I can stop worrying. But also just in the world for human beings, there's no point at which we go, "Okay, everything's good. You know, chaos has stopped. Chaos is never stopping. (laughs) Just look at the news. So we have to find a way to bring down the, you know, constantly vibrating terror in our minds and in our bodies because The world isn't going to do that for us.
1: You know, it makes me think of flying, and I'm not a particularly nervous flyer, but I have been a flyer who is gripping the armrests, right? Because only my fervent gripping of the armrests is actually keeping us in the air right now. Delta flight (laughs) 624. I keep my eyes on the ground. I have to sit in the window because if I
0: look at the ground, that's how I keep the plane going safely. Yeah. We all have our ways of keeping planes
1: safe. (laughs) We're working so hard. (laughs) It's really hard, guys. It's a lot. It feels so useful, right? It's so much to keep us going. But like while you're building this, you know, like while I'm gripping the armrest of the plane, my daughter is in gym class, like, you know, tripping over a, you know, orange cone and twisting her knee, like your son's epilepsy, as much as you worried, as good of a worrier and protector and bubble wrapper as you were, you don't see like the things that are coming for you or the things that are coming for you and your kids. And they're not all bad, but they are completely unpredictable.
2: Right. You know, we control so much less than we imagine we do. And we burn so much fuel. I'm going with your (laughs) your plane metaphor. We burn so much fuel emotionally and mentally, pretending we control these things. Mm -hmm.
1: Mary Laura, to that end, will you read us? There's a paragraph about this thing, this thing that's coming for your kid or yourself and how you can't prepare. Can you read that for us?
2: Yeah. So it begins with the sentence, everybody has something, which is a phrase we started using a lot around our house after this thing happened with our son, because we wanted to kind of normalize the fact that like, nobody has a perfect body, perfect mind, perfect everything. We've all got a little something going on and look, you found your thing. Here it is. So here we go. Everybody has something and most things aren't so bad. All that's true, but there's more to it. You don't get to choose what your thing is, whether you get just one thing or more or how your thing will respond to your efforts to manage it. And no matter how willingly you accept that about yourself, your compliance with fate doesn't earn you any say in anyone else's thing either, not even your own child's. I love that. We're going to take a break. We're talking to Mary
0: Laura Philpot.
1: Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew, and believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro-aunt <laughs> at this yes. point. Our family has seen a lot of babies, and as soon as they start standing or walking, I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers
0: 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360 degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one.
1: Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof. Crucial once your baby is quite literally up an atom. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into.
0: You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusting mix into your water bottle on the go. My favorite flavor so far, Amy, gotta be the cherry pomegranate.
1: Fresh for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order.
0: The paragraph you read before the break, I think one of the other things that we struggle with a lot as moms is this constant comparison, like what is my thing? Is it better or worse than someone else's thing? Does it matter my thing if someone else has a thing that is more difficult? And in contextualizing this for yourself and for your kids, how do you stay out of that lane that is a constant comparison of like, well, let's all keep track of everybody's things so we know where we're allowed to be on the hierarchy of
2: fear and dread. Right, right. The Adversity Olympics, like who has it so bad that they can complain and who doesn't? I mean, it's all relative. I think regardless of what your thing is or what you know of other people's things that they're struggling with, it's important to remember, first of all, that you don't always know. In fact, I would guess that most of the time we don't know, right, what other people are going through. You know, a ton of people my son knows in life don't know he has epilepsy. He doesn't walk around wearing a shirt that says, I have seizures, you know. And likewise, most of the people we know in life are going through something that they're not advertising and we may not know about. So keeping in mind that everyone's got something going on and some things are worse than others, being kind and humble and giving a little benefit of the doubt, having some empathy for people regardless of what you know about what's going on. I think that helps kind of pull us out of the, is my thing worse? Is your thing worse? You shouldn't complain about that. You know, you shouldn't complain about the fact that your kid broke both his legs. My kid has cancer. You know, it's worry comes with parenthood and there are a million different flavors of worry. Worry comes with humanhood. So the more we can just kind of extend a little empathy to people knowing that there's a lot we don't know, I think that helps.
1: Can you talk a little bit about, I identify deeply with the worried about your kid. Your kid has a thing that has a lot of fear around it, a lot of sometimes stigma around it, like epilepsy. Mm -hmm. I have a family member with epilepsy. It makes people take a step back, right? When you try to unburden yourself of your own worry, you can see... You know yeah. people freaking out a little bit right or like my daughter had a very long-term covid repercussions yeah. and people will ask me if she was better and i'd say not really and they kind of didn't want to hear it right like i'm waking up they're gripping the armrests all of a sudden right and all they asked me was how i was doing
2: right it gets exhausting and it's it's you know you wonder like are they asking me how things are going Because they just want me to say pretty good, fine, great. Or do they really want to know? And if they really want to know, like, are they ready for me to pull out the flip charts and give a whole lesson on the brain and electrical currents in your brain? And what is a seizure? And when does it happen? And let's talk about medicine. Because if you really want to know, I could talk about this all day long, but most people don't really want to know. And that gets hard because it does sort of. I don't know about you, but I start to kind of just lock it down a little bit where I'm like, okay, people probably don't want to know about this, how I'm feeling about my child. So I'll just keep it on the inside. And then you're walking around carrying this burden. And it's so separate from, I was telling somebody this the other day, my worry about my kids, both of them, my son and my daughter, is so separate from how they're actually doing. Like even when they're doing great health is fine, school is good, they're feeling good in the world. Because I am a worrier, I'm still worried. Mm -hmm. So sometimes if you were to ask me, how are the kids, they might actually be great. And my first instinct would be to say, oh, I don't know, I hope it's all right. And so I carry that around too. That worry gets lonely and gets burdensome, which is another reason why I'm always kind of trying to work through, how can I let go of some of this? Because it's not productive.
0: Right, it's really funny because my husband, I'll hear him on the phone, you know, and it's like everything's a disaster, right? Like a pipe is burst. It's frozen. It's freezing outside. The house is flooding. It's going to cost more money than we have. One of the kids is sick. Like whatever. It's just disaster time at our house. And I'll hear my husband on the phone talking to someone and he's like, yeah, you know, things are pretty good around here. Everything's fine. And I seriously, I always say to him, if I could just change brains with you for one day, because it's not like he's putting on a face, you know, like, I mean, his internal monologue really is like, eh, I guess everything will probably work out. And I think it can be really hard in a marriage if you're like, wait a minute, I'm doing all the worrying for this entire family. And that feels kind of like a huge burden to me.
2: Yes, it is so true. It is a mindset and a way of thinking that I very much envy. And I wish I was more like your husband and the ability to look around and see all the good things first versus all the things that could possibly maybe go wrong if the right conditions were met. I did a podcast last month. It's a local podcast that a guy here hosts where he pairs up people of different generations. And he had me in conversation with a woman I believe in her late 80s in a retirement home here in town. And her mm-hmm. husband had passed away, her sisters had passed away. And I went in just thinking, she must be so sad. And, you know, she must just right. feel awful. She was the jolliest human being. And she kept repeating, you know, every day is a gift. I can't believe I'm here. Every day is a gift. And she wasn't kidding. And she wasn't, you know, putting me on. It's a mindset to be able to look around and go, you know what, there's a lot of good going on. And I'm here and I get another day to live. So this is great. That's what I'm working
1: toward. And you have that optimistic, sunny, infectious personality that people want to be around. And so yeah, and you call yourself an anxious optimist and talk about how both can be true at the same time. Like I hear you talk about that woman and I think, well, that's how Mary Laura is. So how do you do that? How do you combine the, yes, I worry all the time, but I'm also, I look on the bright side. How do you do both? Yes, I
2: do. I guess I'm just a classic, like hope for the best, but worry about the worst combo. I think part of it is I am a rule follower and I have been since I was little. And so there's a big part of my brain that's like, you know, if we all do our part, everything will be fine. And that is so like deeply ingrained in my mind. And it does make me optimistic. It makes me get up and go, all right, I'm going to take out my recycling and I'm going to go feed the animals and I'm going to be on time for carpool. And if I keep doing things right, things are going to be great. Sometimes things are not great. And at the same time, I'm also worrying about all the things that could not be great. But those two things exist at the same time. And I also think part of what makes me seem sunny and optimistic is that I believe the best for everybody else. Like I look at you two and I'm like, guys, your podcast is going to be amazing. Mm. Everything's going to work out. Awesome. It's super. And then I will look at my own work and be like, I don't know, it can all end tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend similarly optimistic,
0: super rule follower. And then she had something really tragic happen in her life. And it was so devastating for her in a way that I think sometimes for the pessimist, it's a little bit like, oh, here's the thing I've been waiting for, you know? Yes. And I think sometimes that optimism, it sets you up for a little bit of a harder gut
2: punch when things go wrong. Do you think that's true? Yes, Totally, because if you are a rule follower and an optimist, you believe that there's this deal. Yes, that's right. This bargain we've all signed on for where it's like, I do my part, you do your part, it turns out great. And anytime the other party in that bargain doesn't do their part, it's crushing. Not just when that other party is a person, but like I write in Bomb Shelter about, I reached this point in my life where I got really angry about the bargain gone wrong with time. Like, I am going to love my people and take care of my people. And the longer I live, the more people I have to love. And this is great. And then wait a second, we start running out of time and people start (laughs) dying. You know, I write in this book about some losses. That's not cool. (laughs) <laughs> I put in the effort and I love these people to keep them safe. How can time and the world start taking them away? It feels like this deal gone wrong, which is nuts because nobody ever signed a deal with me that said, if you love your people hard enough, they will be safe and good forever. That's imaginary. But in my little rule following brain, I was like, that's the deal. I'm going to be the best mom and the best friend and take care of everybody and they'll all be yeah, fine. because rule following should get you the front seat in
0: class and it should get you an A plus and it should, right? Like we feel that in our bones. Yeah.
1: And it kind of works until you become a parent, I feel like. That's right. (laughs) So let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about the parenthood turn. Hello,
0: Hellions. You know, we listen to a lot of podcasts that are not our own. And today we want to tell you about a podcast that really speaks to us and will speak to any parent of a child with special
1: education needs. The podcast is called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest
0: season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. One of my kids has an IEP, and I found this podcast so validating
1: So we're back. We're talking to Mary Laura Philpott. She is the author of the new memoir and essays bomb shelter. You made a point in this book that I loved you talked about you worked, I believe, writing for a hospital sort of writing their websites and things like that. And remind me what it was that they talked about for parents and you're like, maybe you could just worry about
2: it less mom. What was it? Yeah. Yeah. So I was like 24. I'm super young, nowhere near having children. And I was a copywriter for a children's hospital, which meant I wrote web copy. I wrote brochures and I wrote educational information for parents. It was my job to take like, here's a huge study about, you know, how to feed children who have eating difficulties. Distill this into three pages. And I would, you know, read it and understand it and write it. And I'd sit there typing about, you know, if your child refuses to eat. You mustn't, you know, be a short order cook and make this and make this. You just put the plate down and there's this division of responsibility in eating. And I remember thinking like, maybe these people need to just like stop stressing out so much. Put the chicken fingers on the table and it's fine. The kid's not going to starve. I don't get it. I just had no clue what it would feel like ever to try really hard to take care of someone who either could not or would not. Respond to your yep. care. I just didn't get it. You hadn't opened the door on
0: the submarine yet, right? Like it hadn't flooded in and been like nothing like what you thought it was going to be.
2: Right. There were so many times in that job where I was like, huh, parents of children all need to take a Valium and calm down. They're all so stressed about all these things. It's not a big deal. Oh my gosh, I get it now.
1: Right. When your four year old won't eat, right. It's incredibly stressful. Or your teenager. Doesn't want to take the medication, or right. it's about to turn eighteen, and they can do whatever they want. That is a scary place to be in.
2: And you're chasing them out the door, going, well, "Do you have your keys? Wear your seatbelt. Remember the stop signs You know, and you realize as soon as they pull out of the driveway, I have no control over what happens. Yeah, right. It's just so it's such a powerless feeling.
0: There's such an outside inside, and I feel like what this book does really well is takes you inside someone else's experience because. I feel like on the flip side of the, what did you call it, Adversity Olympics, when you're going through something, it is so powerful for yourself. A friend's dad is struggling with something and I'm like, oh, that sounds hard. But then when it happens to me, it's like people do you know yeah. what is going on in my life right now? Like, <laughs> and I know that everyone's like, oh yeah, that does seem hard. And I'm like, hard? Like, come drag yourself inside my brain where like, I'm actually dealing with this every day and I'm losing it and I'm not doing okay. And yeah, I think that there's this divide there that's very hard
2: to cross. It's so true. I remember, and I write in this book about a few years ago, my dad had a sort of- yes surprise, emergency triple bypass surgery, because his arteries just collapsed, completely blocked. And it was, you know, one of those moments where you get the phone call, you get in the car, you know, driving across the border from Tennessee to Georgia thinking, I've just got to get there to see him alive at the end of this surgery. And it was a very stressful several weeks as he got through that surgery and got through recovery. And it was all I could think about. And just like you just said, a year later, a friend of mine's dad, exact same thing happened. And when she called me, I was like, it's going to be fine. I know it seems really stressful, but the, you know, it's a long recovery, but they get through it. You're going to be fine. And I thought, this is exactly <laughs> this is what everyone was doing to me when I was like, no, no, no. It's the end of the world. This is my father. We've talked about that with toxic
0: positivity and people always trying to tell you everything's going to be okay. But that gap is not, in some ways, it's not that surmountable. Like I cannot feel the worry over your son's epilepsy that you feel over it. It's not, there's a divide there that is kind of absolute. Yeah. And I think it's interesting as we try to support each other through
2: stuff, like how do you connect through that divide? Empathy, empathy, empathy. And just, you know, there's a chapter in this book that's sort of comic relief. It's funny in a way. It's about a, I went on a college tour with my son and the admissions director before the tour was like doing that speech where they're like, remember parents, you're all just overbearing shrews and you need to quit trying to control, you know. I love this part of the book. I loved it. Yeah. It's such a, you know, cautionary tale. Stop trying to control your children and where they go to school. And he's like, can you believe we had a tour a few weeks ago where the mom and the Daughter got into a screaming match on the tour. Can you believe? And all the other people on the tour were like, Oh, a screaming match? That's horrible. I would never. And immediately I started imagining that mom and that daughter and what kind of day they had been having and what kind of week they had been having leading up to this college visit and all the reasons why even the most Gilmore girls, mother and daughter pair in the world could end up having a screaming match in a college tour. It could totally happen. And the more I think we can. Try to put ourselves in each other's heads and each other's shoes, even if it takes imagination, even if you know nothing about someone else and you're just like, okay, here's a scenario that could have led to this. Maybe this happened and you just have that empathy. We need to do that.
1: There's a little something called soiling the nest that that guy needs to read an article about, right? That that kid is getting ready to leave home and it's a phenomenon, right? In order for me to be able to leave, which I'm freaked out about, my mother has to become the most annoying person in the world to me so that I'm okay leaving. Yep. And then for the mother too, right? In order for me to let her go, she has to be driving me so nuts that I'm okay with her leaving. Right. Right. It's the most natural thing in the world to be happening. Of course, it's intense to be on a college tour. Yeah, that drives me nuts when they're like, back off, parents. Also, be in charge, parents. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah, exactly. Handle everything great. Don't get in their business. Make sure they're handling their business, but don't get near it. It's crazy. (laughs) Do this? Not that. Yeah.
1: I want to talk about the bomb shelter metaphor, which is throughout the book, including on the cover. So I want to talk about the turtle in the cover. The turtle's on the cover because the turtle's in the book, but it took me until this morning like, oh, the turtle carries his bomb shelter with him. Yeah
2: he carries his shelter. And we're saying he, because this is a specific turtle on the cover. His name is Frank and he lives in my backyard. And I know that he is a male. Is that turtle. an actual picture of Frank from your backyard? Oh, it is. Oh, amazing. Go to my website. There's a little thing that says, who is Frank? Who is this turtle? You can read the story of how I got this photo. The original cover did not have Frank on it because Frank was hibernating at the time. Oh. <laughs> it was a whole touch and go kind of thing. But, you know, turtles, like many Creatures out in the wild have a built-in protective mechanism on their body. Humans don't have that. We don't have a shell. We don't have venom. We don't have you know these big claws that can rip things open. We just have these little soft water balloon bodies, and so our brains try to become uh, uh-huh. our protective mechanism. Mine does anyway. Yeah. I also think if you look at Frank kind of sideways, if you kind of squint at him on this cover, he looks like a grenade. Right. So he sort of visually suggestive of an explosive. (laughs) But it occurs
1: to me like as a parent, you build this bomb shelter for your kids or think that you are like in here. Right. Come in here, children, where it's safe and warm and nothing can harm you. And then if you've done a good job, the order of things is they now leave and they don't have a shell on their
2: backs and they move slowly away from you. Right. And then everything that you've been doing all along, you have to reverse it all. Your whole goal for 18 years or whatever has been keep them safe, build the shelter, you know, make the world a good place for them to go out and do. And then you have to let go. It's so hard. Right. A 180. It's super hard. Hurry up and let go, mom. Right. <laughs> and then people are like, Ugh, moms, they're the worst. We are having a hard time.
0: <laughs> yes, people. It's really challenging. So we like on the podcast to set up the problem and then find the solution. So Mary Laura, how does it all work out? How do we all turn out safe and fine? (laughs) But really, what is that process for you in terms of the journey that you take in this book and the place that you get to and moving? Because certainly everyone listening is identifying with this issue of like, I am somehow keeping the plane in the air and the kids safe with my very strong mind. But it's doing us some mental and
2: bodily damage to do that. And so where are we going here? Two things. One, what helps me immensely and continues to help me is just to remind myself, just like I'm not really keeping a plane in the air with my mind, <laughs> I cannot keep everyone I love safe. And although that is sad, it's also true. And if I can remind myself that it's true, nobody can keep everyone they love safe. I can stop fighting against it a little bit and doing that mental struggle of no, but I must. No, I can't. All I can do is take care of as many people as I can, as best I can. And if I can, I would like to read you one. Can I read you one more paragraph? I would love we would that. Love it. Okay. This is toward the very end of the book, but it's not like a spoiler or anything. I'm not giving anything away. I write, it's true. There will always be threats lurking under the water where we play, danger hiding in the attic and rolling down the street on heavy wheels, unexpected explosions in our brains and our hearts and the sky. There will always be bombs and we will never be able to save everyone we care about. To know that and to try anyway is to be fully alive. The closest thing to shelter we can offer one another is love, as deep and wide and in as many forms as we can give it. That's what helps me.
1: Wow. (laughs) That helped me too. Really helped me. This book is just terrific. The book is called Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives. Mary-Laura, tell us where we can
2: find your work, the book, you know everything. The book is wherever you buy books, especially in your local bookstore. If you would like a signed copy, you can order it from my local bookstore, which is Parnassus Books in Nashville. All those links are on my website. I'm out on tour right now as you're hearing this. And I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, and I have a Facebook, but it got hacked. So I'm there sometimes, but not always. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
1: sorry that happened to you. It's not the real Mary Laura. I mean, it's me. I just don't open it very much. But Instagram and Twitter, for sure. If there's no turtle, it's not the real Mary. (laughs) (laughs) She's the hacker. (laughs) That's right. We'll put links to all of that on the show notes for this episode. Mary Laura, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me.
3: you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter-Free,